that's my favorite kind of growth. That tells me we're doing it right. If, if we have a hospital that's happy enough to give our name out without us even asking, and then we can grow into that new market, that's, that's the, the best kind of growth. Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Workforce Podcast, where we explore the business and profession of emergency medicine. I'm Leon Edelman, an emergency physician and co-founder of Ivy Clinicians. Today, we bring on Dr. Boykin Robinson, founding member and CEO of Core Clinical Partners, a hospital-based physician services organization that brings hospitals, physicians, and advanced practice professionals together with a common goal of providing outstanding patient care. I've followed Dr. Robinson's career for a while, and he's an impressive example of a physician who saw an opportunity to improve care in emergency departments across the country and made it happen. In our conversation, we talk about the why behind Core Clinical Partners and what it's like to run a startup as well as the advice Dr. Robinson would give to aspiring emergency physician leaders. Boykin went to the University of South Carolina for medical school, otherwise known as the real USC, then did his emergency medicine residency at Emory. He later worked for Apollo MD and grew with that company for 18 years, where he ended up running a division doing emergency medicine and hospital medicine across seven states. There, he figured out the good and the bad of emergency medicine big business. And so we figured out, you know, hey, are we coding charts optimally? With economy of scale, can we get better pricing on billing? Can we get better managed care rates? And so there are a lot of things you can do at scale that you can't do when you're small. The downside is you lose that personal touch. When you get really big, you, you lose the ability even to make sure you have a standard product across all of your locations. So Boykin wanted to make a change. He went to the University of Tennessee's Physician Executive MBA program, PEMBA, and decided it was time to start his own thing. I actually started the MBA program in January and then quit my job and started a company in April. So, so really started the process for that right around the same time at, that I had started the MBA. And it made for a great 2018 because I had this very small new company with one small contract in North Georgia, which didn't take all of my time to run. So I was trying to figure out all the ways to market myself and network and, and try to run it. But it was so small that I had enough time to spend, to concentrate on my MBA and knew exactly what I wanted to learn because now, unlike when I signed up for it, I knew that what I really wanted to learn was how do I run a startup? How do I, how do I start a small company? How do I scale it? How do I get funding? All these things that I wouldn't have known I needed uh, had I taken, you know, had I gotten my MBA a couple of years before. And you know, as you mentioned, we, we both have our degrees from the, the PEMBA program, Physician Executive MBA, University of Tennessee. And I think you feel the same way. I really, really enjoyed that program. Um, felt like I learned a ton. Yeah, it was super focused exactly on what we needed to know. There was no fluff. Plus, after medical school, business school was a lot more fun. Yeah. You know, somebody mentioned, so a, a colleague of mine said this at some point after I graduated, which I've always remembered. He, 
He said, when you have a conversation about business, everything is more fluid now. Because I remember thinking after I left, I mean, I, I can point to things that here I learned this and I'm better at Excel and I know how to look at financials. But it was really that. It's if I'm talking to investment bankers or bankers in general or whomever, somebody who really understands business, I can have a fluid conversation now that I don't think I could have before I started the program. Agreed. Agreed. So speaking of that, during that MBA program, you did have to come up with your plan for core clinical partners. What, what did you see in the market that made you say, hey, this this plan is worth coming up with in the first place, that, that a new company needs to exist? Yeah, so I, I think that what I was seeing was there's there's been so much consolidation in the market, right? So the, the bigger private equity-backed companies were buying up smaller groups left and right. There were groups growing organically, but there was a lot of consolidation just with, you know, by check. And so everybody was getting so big, I felt like they had lost some personal connection to their hospitals. I felt like that if I could, if I could bring in people who understood how to do it at scale and bring in people who understood the bells and whistles, the, how do you fix flow? How do you decrease length of stay? How do you run a really professional revenue cycle? If I could bring in those people who knew it from other companies, but do it on a smaller scale, that we could maintain personal relationships, we could really get boots on the ground in there fixing stuff. And so th that was my original thesis, was that it can be done, you, the, the, the small groups who don't have any of that expertise, they struggle sometimes. Right? Maybe, they, maybe they don't know 50 different ways to fix flow, and they don't, they're, they're so small that all they can do is just outsource their billing and hope the billing company does a good job. And, and by and large, there, there, are, there are issues with that. So I felt like if I brought people in from, from who, who understood it, that we could do a better job and, and still have that personal connection. And so far, so good. I believe it. So one of the things that, as a fellow startup founder, one of the things that, that I've found is Donald Rumsfeld's line about unknown unknowns is like always there. So what were some of the things that, that you didn't foresee that, that caused challenges during that first uh, stage of the business? One of the things that I didn't really realize coming from a larger company was how slowly the cash comes in at first. I knew it. I knew that, well, you've got to, you know, you've got to sign up your tax ID number for Medicaid and Medicare and the commercial payers. And I knew it intellectually that it was slow, but it wasn't until we were every month trying to figure out if there was enough money in the bank to make payroll that it really, you really learn, you know, oh, this, this really is slow. And so, you know, that first contract and then when we picked up our second and our third, as we were, as those were starting out and we were making payrolls, sometimes almost with money we didn't have, um, I, I really, really learned the lesson that, uh, you know, you, you've got to watch your cash and you've got to understand that cash comes in slowly in this yeah, business, smart. at least at first. And one of the other things that that we were taught at, at Pemba is always come in with a plan, right? Always have your have your vision and that at least can guide you through the first few steps. What was your vision when you were getting started? What did you think Core was going to look like? To be honest, I thought Core would look a lot like it does right now. 
I thought that we, I knew we were starting as an emergency medicine company. I assumed that we would move into hospital medicine, and, and we did um, within the first two years. And I thought my original thesis was, hey, we can get on the ground and fix things. I mean, I, 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 now, now I have a team that does it, but I, was, I used to be pretty good at figuring out how to fix ED flow. What if we did this? What if we move patients here? Let's have a lean process. So I knew I could do it. And, and my hope was we would get big enough that I would hire teams to do it. I would have thought I would have started in the Southeast with connections I had and sort of grown concentrically around Atlanta. And, and that didn't happen. We, we've grown in various ways, uh, but we ended up with a lot of business in the middle of the country. We have a lot of Oklahoma, Texas, Louisiana business, uh, which is fantastic. But I think in a lot of ways it, it worked out it is working out sort of like I planned it. I actually pulled out my, I wrote a business plan for a startup emergency medicine company as part of that, getting that degree. And I actually pulled it out three or four months ago just to see how far off I was. And my five-year projection was actually not too far off, um, which is cool. kind of amazing. Yeah, it's uh, very different from my experience with, with Ivy. I wrote this like 25 page, like masterwork of a business plan. And if I look at it, and that was just what, 18 months ago, if I look at that, that business plan right now, it's like totally different just because like the nature of software is like, you, you don't really know what you're doing and then everything can change in, in a heartbeat. Well, you're, right? you're inventing, you're inventing a space. I knew my, I knew my space. Uh, so I had, I had some advantage there. Exactly. So one of the, one of the, the things that, that we both have to do though is bring on good people. How did you, how did you get good physicians, PAs, nurse practitioners? How did you get them to say, you know, you should follow me as opposed to like, you have all these businesses that already exist. Why, why come follow Boykin with this new, newfangled business? Yeah. You know, we were lucky in the first three contracts when we didn't really have an identity. We didn't have a culture. We had nothing else we could show we had done. We were able to retain the clinicians, docs and, and APPs, pretty much 100% at all three of those. So the first, the first one, we, we retained 100%. I had to sell them on, you're going to really get a paycheck. But I didn't have to, they were already at the hospital. Matter of fact, they already knew me. And so that was relatively easy to get them to sign on. When we got to the next couple and people who didn't know me, there was a little bit of, you know, hey, we're this new company. We're really small, but, uh, you know, <laughs> I'm sure they were thinking, what if you go out of business and I don't get paid? But we were able to stay with 100% retention. So that was, so in 2018, we started with one, ended the year with three contracts, but we didn't need any recruiting. And so, because we retained everybody. So all the way through 2019, as we were trying really hard to grow and failing, we we, we responded to 12 RFPs that year, and we went over 12. But at least the three contracts we had, for the most part, docs and APPs were staying. And so we, we had a little bit of outsourced recruiting in case we needed to fill a slot. But in general, we didn't have a big recruiting need then. So I still wasn't having to sell people on why join core because I had sold them on why stay in your job when we come in. Now, <clears throat> on the other side is the corporate side. And so that was more selling the dream of, you know, hey, come join us. Here's what we're going to do. 
and it worked out. I mean, I wanted people who understood the space and, and I hired people from Envision and SCP and H&I. And so we, people who understood it at scale, who could come in and do it with us, you know, in a, in a smaller, more contained way. How does an individual physician that I'd assume doesn't have, you know, a hundred million dollar trust fund to just throw around, how does a physician or how did you find the money to even start the company? Yeah, so I actually had three original partners. And so the four of us started the company. And the idea was that I was doing the work and they were funding that initial, that initial start. So starting the first new contract. But pretty soon, within the first year, we actually bought two of them out. And so, so that got us, that now, now we're kind of back to steady state. But then, so then the next two contracts we started, we needed money again. And we actually were able to borrow the money from our billing company. They basically advanced us the money. And we were then able to, to, you know, to pay that back as revenue started coming in. Once we got past that, we end, we, then we were big enough to sign a, an AR-backed line with a healthcare lender. And so now we have a, a line of credit that floats with our accounts receivable. And then, then the other question is on the, on the other side. How did you go about deciding who would have an ownership stake? It, it, it's pretty controversial these days in emergency medicine, like how ownership works. Can you, can you talk a little bit about, about that? Yeah, so my one of my original thoughts was that I, I really wanted to have a physician ownership at the local level in each different contract. So every different contract is, is its own LLC. That's the way the space works. And so my thought was ownership in the LLC. And so we, we did that with the first one. The way we, the, the second and third, we sort of rescued another failing company and made a payroll that we, that we were never going to get. And so there was a lot of money we needed to make back from those before we could share anything. And, and then it turned out those two contracts didn't really make any money. And so there was nothing really to share. There was no, no way to create it. So since that time, as we've grown, we have sometimes employed some local ownership or some ownership at the local level. It's, it's harder to do than you would think. Most physicians don't want to take the risk. And so it, you, you can't just give the ownership without the risk. You've got to take the docs. have got to take the risk if they want it. And most don't. I will also say that the space, you know, margins in the space have been compressed. And so I think that you know there there certainly are still fantastic single democratic groups who have great contracts with really high margins, and so it's easy for them to to come in and and share in in all this revenue that's coming in. It doesn't you know if you're in a twenty thousand volume ER with a seven percent profit margin, you know the the docs aren't very interested in sharing the few thousand dollars they would get, right? And they certainly aren't going to take any risk for it. So. So I think that ownership is more challenging than, than I'd like for it to be. Uh, I think we're still trying to figure it out and figure out what the right answer is. I'm, I, I'm, I'm very pro-physician ownership in companies like these. I mean, and, and our company is majority physician-owned, but we're still trying to figure out the right way to get opportunities for docs as we grow. Got it. So let's transition a little bit to your scaling of 
core clinical partners because you were able to to grow in a in a very short amount of time from a from a tiny group to now a a mid-sized group and and I would recommend for anybody who wants to learn about core clinical partners or about uh, an early-ish stage uh, clinician uh, partner group, Boykin's blog on the core clinical partners website is is fantastically written, and I would highly recommend checking it out. Can you talk a little bit about the principles that you use to scale? Um, because you did mention that you wanted to build something very specific that had both the aspects of of a small group and some of the aspects of a big group. So it sounds like you had a very specific set of principles in mind when you went to scale. When we first started trying to grow, we were just looking for opportunity, right? And so it wasn't, we only want this kind of a place. It was, what kind of a place can we talk to? And, you know, the way these opportunities come about is all different. There's no... There, there, there's no absolute way that you make a connection and grow. When a hospital becomes dissatisfied with their physician group, whether it's emergency medicine, hospital medicine, anesthesia, they will sometimes put out a request for a proposal, an RFP, and groups can respond to that. The problem is they just send it to a few groups they know or a few groups they want to respond. And so when you're a new group, you know, I, I knew that, that that 2019 year, you know, there were, you know, who knows, 50, 100 different RFPs going out that I had no way of knowing were going out. And I would see some new, some group announce, hey, we have a new contract here. And I'd think, oh, man, I didn't even have a chance. Didn't know it was happening. So as you get bigger, as you get more of a network, um, you start to find out about more of those. And then for us, a lot of our growth, most of our growth, has come from either our network or referrals. So we've had a couple of new contracts that only happened because one of our current administrators said, hey, would you mind if I gave your name to my colleague? They're looking for a new ER group. And I love that. That's my favorite kind of growth. That tells me we're doing it right. If, if we have a hospital that's happy enough to give our name out without us even asking, and then we can grow into that new market, that's, that's the, the best kind of growth. And, and you know, we've been, we now, as a, as a, like you said, a mid-sized company, that's probably fair. We are pickier. You know, I, I only want now, I want to grow into markets that make strategic sense for us, into systems that make strategic sense for us. You know, we've definitely turned down business in the last 12 months that we probably wouldn't have turned down, you know, three years ago. Can you talk a little bit more about kind of the nuts and bolts of a provider group contract with the hospital? How does that, how does that even work? Yeah, it really depends. So what you do when you are thinking about providing the service is you have to, you have to create a performa. And so you have to estimate what you think your revenues will be. So the hospital typically gives you a payer mix and a volume. And so you work with your billing company or with your internal revenue cycle people to work out what you think your average collections will be, multiplied by the volume. Okay, that's your collections minus your costs. And so you got billing costs, and you got to figure out what your med mal costs are going to be, all your operational costs to run the to run it, and of course your largest cost is clinician cost. And so that's a whole nother thing that maybe Ivy helps with, where you can figure out in this mark what does this market look like. 
right? How much do people make in this market? How oversaturated or undersaturated is this market? Because you've got to figure out what you're going, what fair recruitable rate you're going to pay and how you're going to staff it. You know, are you staffing at 1.8 patients an hour or, you know, or, or, or do you need to be at 1.6 because the volume is low and they're slow at night? You know, um, you also look at things like the EHR. Is it, is it epic with dragon? Then, okay, they can probably move a little faster. You know, is it, I won't name, but if, if you have a, a, a bad EHR, um, they might move more slowly. So there's a lot that goes into that pro forma. So, but basically you look at it and you say, can we run this on our own? If we have no financial help from the hospital, can we run this? Would it make sense uh, or would it be in the red? If it makes sense, then you put in a proposal and say, hey, we can just run it uh, without a subsidy. Often you say, hey, we can run this, but we need X amount of financial support to make it work. And then the hospital looks at their various bids and hopefully they're not deciding purely based on the lowest bid, but some combination of one of the lower bids with, we think this group is going to do a really good job. One of the things that um, would be tempting to do in a situation like that is, is to try to minimize clinician spend, right? And so uh, that can mean hire a bunch of family physicians or more PAs, nurse practitioners. How do you address those kind of the, the gravitational pull in that direction? Yeah, so again, you've, you've got to balance quality with cost, and you've got to balance what the hospital is going to want. And so you're right. You can, you can get in, and we've seen this through the years. We've seen groups who go in and underbid a contract to get it, and then they've got to figure out what to do. They can either, as you said, they can you know, understaff, they can change the skill mix, they can go back to the hospital in a year and say, hey, this didn't work, we need more money, um, which you know, sometimes works, sometimes doesn't. But it also means you have to have a really big pocketbook in order to survive that year. And that's the hard thing for small groups is that you don't have any – and that's one of the reasons we didn't grow in 19 – our risk tolerance was very low because we couldn't make a mistake. And, and I saw, I've seen this with some other smaller groups, and I was actually just talking to somebody yesterday about a, a friend of a friend who I think has, was awarded a contract but doesn't really know what to do next. And my concern in those cases is you're dependent on someone else to give you your, your projected collections per visit. And if it's wrong you can go red really quickly. Um, and so if somebody's, you know, if, a, if an ER doc gets, or, or a hospital gets a contract with a hospital, that's great, that's the first step. But if any of your financials are off, then you know, you, you're either you know, going in debt or not paying yourself or not paying you and your partners you know, for the first X amount of time. And that's even after thinking about the weight. You know, the, that's the other part of taking a new contract is, no money comes in for three to six months. And so, you know, you have to have cash. If you're going to pay your docs, you have to have cash to get through those first three to six months and then get, you know, hopefully steady state is sometimes even nine to 12 months, depending on the state and the payers. Let's take a break to tell you about our sponsor, IV Clinicians. 
Full disclosure here, I'm Ivy's founder. Both as a practicing physician and ED medical director, navigating the job market felt like going back to the days of classifieds and smoke-filled rooms. Who staffs which ED? I don't know. Who should I contact there? I don't know. What's it like to work there? You get the point. So our team at Ivy created the Zillow of the emergency medicine job market. With Ivy, you can find all 5,549 EDs in the United States, filter them by your preferences, and connect with the right employers, all for free. Your data is secure with Ivy. You pick which employers can see your profile. Sign up now at ivyclinicians.io. When Ivy connects you with your next emergency medicine job, we will even send you a bottle of champagne and a bag of 321 coffee beans to celebrate. That's ivyclinicians.io. All right, back to the show. One of the other kind of aspects of, of growing this, this business is keeping the business, right? So you can get a contract, but you also need to, to retain that contract. What have you found hospital administrators are looking for when they decide whether to retain uh, CORE or any other group? And, and what in there has been a surprise to you? Yeah, they're, they're definitely looking to not have that specialty on their radar or coming up in their office, right? That if they never hear about emergency medicine again, you're doing a great job. And, but, but assuming they do hear about it, uh, then, you know, it, it does, it comes down to metrics, you know, in, in emergency medicine, it's, it's patient experience and left without being seen and turnaround times in hospital medicine. It's really length of stay, length of stay, length of stay and, and patient experience. So we, we see different flavors of administrator. We really do see some where if they're not hearing about it, then it's good. And we see some who are very intent on looking at metrics all the time and pushing you to fix metrics. Certainly, if you have complaints about your physicians, you know, that's, that becomes a hot topic. You know, I think groups lose contracts because, for, I mean, one of two reasons, right? They don't do a great job with X, right, quality, docs, whatever it is, or they need more money than somebody else. And hospital finance right now is a mess. I mean, you know, look at, look at the headlines in Becker's or Modern Healthcare. I mean, you know, all these systems are losing, you know, tens, hundreds of millions, billions of dollars. It wouldn't be uh, responsible of them not to look at costs. So if they have a service line that is where all of the docs are making, you know, well over market, they're probably looking at that line going, hey, either it's a private group where all the docs are making over market or a company where the company's making over market. They're probably looking at it to see, you know, hey, how, how could we make this better for ourselves and, and who could blame them? One of the aspects of a business that grows beyond the, the, the local, and you had mentioned this um, earlier, is that you don't know everybody. You're not friends with with everybody that, that is in your your business necessarily. Can you tell tell us a few kind of insights or maybe some stories about hires that went well, hires that didn't go well, and and how to approach that at at, at the scale that you have? Yeah, so you know on the on the corporate side, I think we've been really uh, fortunate and done a really good job of hiring people who 
who who I like, <laughs> people who are highly confident, who came who came recommended. You know, it's it's always better in cl- clinical or corporate if, it, if they come recommended by someone who you know. That's usually makes it easier, right? I, I always go back, but whether it's corporate or clinical, I go back. The guy who started Apollo, Jerry Bortolazzo, recruited you know tons of docs in his time, and I remember him telling me that his his litmus test was, would I want to have a beer with this person? And if you would, then pr- if think about a clinician. You know, you, you can't you can't check how good a clinician they are in an interview. But if, if you want to have a beer with them, then the nurses are probably going to like them. The patients are probably going to like them. The specialists are probably going to like them. You know, and administration's probably going to like them. And that goes a long way. If they turn out to be a terrible con- clinician, then that, that's a non-starter. That's hard to tell out of an interview, right? And so it really does come down to likability, just like so much of life, right? And uh, And I think the same thing on the corporate side, right? I mean... We, we have a great culture here in the Atlanta office of people, people, I don't have a requirement people come in the office. People come in the office because they want to come in the office, which is fantastic. And so we've got to keep that culture as we grow. Let's spend a little bit of time uh, giving you the opportunity to brag on Core Clinical Partners. So what's different about working at Core compared to other emergency medicine practices? I think we spend a lot of time on process and trying to make things work smoothly in the department. Now, some of that is because that's what our hospital partner expects, right? And some of that is, well, if you can decrease left without being seen, then you're going to look better to the hospital. If you can decrease uh, your your length of stay, you will, your ED length of stay, then you'll decrease the number of patients in the waiting room. But what also happens with all of that, another really important reason to do it, is physician satisfaction. It's so much easier to work in a well-oiled machine than to work in a place where you've got to ask for the urine sample 17 times, right? And, and there's, when patients are frustrated, it's a frustrating day. It's no fun taking care of patients who are all, at that point, unhappy to be there. Same goes for nurses, right? You're working with nurses who are unhappy to be there. And so don't get me wrong, we don't have like a magic bullet to fix all of the problems, but if we can put in process that decreases wait time, that moves things faster, if we can move people out, if we can smooth out staffing, we've, we, we started a new emergency medicine program about a year and a half ago, and one of the things they said as we got started, or before we got started, was um, we probably need more staffing from 11P to 2A, because that's where we're having most of our left without being seen, and that we have shift change then, and it's, it's a real mess, so let's look at that. It's okay. So we looked at it. That wasn't the problem. The problem was 8 a.m. The problem was that even though most ERs don't get busy till 10 or 11, this one got busy at 8. And so they were getting overwhelmed at 8 a.m., not in a way they could notice, but patients just slowly started stacking up from 8 a.m., and you just never caught up. And all those patients who were there at 11 weren't getting there at 11. It was actually the, the, the arrival pattern was shifted left compared to what we normally see. But the pain of, of what was happening was shifted right, and they were seeing it at midnight. And so, so we actually got them to bring in nurses earlier. We brought in one of our uh, clinicians earlier and actually fixed a lot of the problems by bringing in people earlier. And so things like that, t- taking the time to look at a demand capacity curve and trying to figure out the optimal way to staff 
that makes our clinicians more satisfied at work. Chuck Noon and Jody Crane would be very proud of you. Yes. So yes. Um, that's cool. So which which of your sites would you say you're especially proud of? And you want to tell like a story of of that success? Yeah, sure. Uh, I think there's a real interesting site. This is a hospital medicine example, but we're at the uh, at the Hill, at Hillcrest Medical Center in Tulsa, and you know it, it's it's the and it, the startup was the antithesis of what I was describing in my first few contracts, where we we retained everyone. In this case, we knew that the individual who had been running it for 20 years or so had no interest in he or any of his docs staying and made it really challenging for some ugly non-competes and different things, uh, legal threats. And so we had to build a whole new team. And so we we went from really essentially zero clinicians to about 90. Um, Over the course, it took us a while. Over the course of the year, we're now fully staffed. But when we started in March, we started with enough new clinicians to us that we were able to decrease length of stay. This is a our census runs about 250 a day, so big place. We decreased length of stay by one day, a full day, in the first month we were there. Now, admittedly, it was a low bar because it was a kind of lower-performing group before, but I've never heard of, of uh, length of stay going down by a day that quickly. And so I'm really proud of that one because we made huge operational changes and, and much better quality of care for patients and built up a team basically from scratch, you know, zero to to 90, 80, 90 clinicians in, inside of a year because we're now, we're now fully staffed and, and we're, we're only nine months Very in. impressive. So yeah, That's definitely awesome. proud of that one. And what would you, so having told this you know, inspiring story of how you kind of learned from Apollo MD and, and from um, really good educational programs and then built your own group, what advice do you have to to early career emergency physicians, PAs, and nurse practitioners? So I think first, I mean, if you're really early, work, work clinically, work a lot, work, figure out, uh, you know, you've got to get, you've got to become expert at what you do first, right? I think, unfortunately, now with all of the, with, with all the problems in emergency medicine, there are people looking to get out early. And if they're going to get out and do something else, that's one thing. But if you're going to stay in the space, you've got to be expert at it first, right? And so whether that's 10,000 hours or more than that, um, something to where you're really expert at it, but then get really good at flow. I think that was, I remember actually one of my, I told you I worked at four or five different locations in Atlanta and I didn't realize I was doing it, but at every single one, I was making suggestions. And I remember one of the medical directors saying, you need to become a medical director so you can understand how hard these suggestions are to implement. <laughs> yes, because you're you're here every understand. you know every every week saying, hey, what if you did this? What if you did this? And you know you just don't understand how hard it is. And so it was good that I got my first director job and and did see how hard it was. But you know you that that's how you start. You start by thinking about, hey, could we do this differently? It doesn't just because it's always been done this way doesn't mean we have to do it this way. So let's think about different ways to do it. Let's think create creatively. Let's um, you know always look at lean process and then take the opportunities. You know, I was talking to a doc the other day who feels a little stuck in where they are and thinking about doing something else. And, and he said, "Look, I I could keep doing what I'm doing for the next ten years, and I don't know that's the end of the world." And I said, "Hey, if you're happy with it, that's great. But you don't want to look back ten years from now and 
and not have, you know, if you had an opportunity to do something different that you thought you really wanted to do, you should do it. I mean, trust me, there's, it, it was terrifying to make the jump I made. I think, I think you're supposed to take jumps like that when you're 30 without a mortgage, you know, without kids. And, um, you know, and I, I, I did it at a time that was um, where I couldn't fail. Um, and so there was some stress to that, of course. You know, e- even when things were, were rough, and they were, 19, early 20, uh, in, into 20, you know, certainly some times where I wondered if CORE would make it. But even then, I was so glad I had made the jump and given it a try. And then, you know, in kind of mid-20 through now, we were able to totally turn it around. And, you know, we'll, we're in 31 contracts, and we'll see about 650,000 visits this year. And that, that's if we don't grow, and we've been growing at 50-plus percent a year. So it's uh, certainly, certainly turned itself around and been a lot of fun. So as a proponent of physician leadership and, and as someone who really has, has done a great job of ensuring that that physician-patient relationship is is at the center of your business. Is there a future for the small to medium-sized emergency medicine group, or or is the the next five to ten years just going to be dominated by consolidation? Yeah, it's a great question, and, and I, I don't know. NSA is not helping um, because NSA is making it even more complicated to get revenue cycle done the right way, and I think as as hospitals are looking to save every penny they have, it doesn't make sense to be with a group that's not maximizing their revenue on the other side. Now, not to say that, I mean, there are well, very well-run private groups who do an amazing job. And they do an amazing job across the board, right? They do an amazing job of process improvement and taking on other specialties and revenue cycle. Like, they, they do everything that a national group would do and they do it well and they do it with a personal touch and they care. Those groups aren't going anywhere, but it's the groups. I go back. This is a, a few years back, but um, back when I was with Apollo, we, we ended up coming, we didn't replace, but we came in at some point after a private group had been there. And one of the administrators said, what do you guys think about core measures? And I said, I'm not even sure what that means. They said, well, our other, the group we had, they, they didn't believe in them. And I was like, well, that's not a thing. Like you can't, I don't, yeah, I don't think there's anybody now who doesn't believe in core measures. But, you know, if there are private groups out there who aren't, if they're not listening to the goals of the hospital, they're arguing with, sometimes the goals of the hospital are challenging for us to deal with. You know, thinking about patients sat in the setting of 20 borders and a 25-bed ER seems ridiculous. But the hospital is concerned with that, right? And so we can't just ignore it. We can, we can understand that there's very little we can do about things right now, but, but we can do what we can. I think as long as private groups are continuing to educate themselves, they're getting better at flow, they're getting better at how to fix patient sat, and they run a good revenue cycle, I think there's there definitely can continue, you know, but like you said, there's been a lot of consolidation and it's not getting easier. Cool. So in uh, in conclusion of a few a few more quirky questions, one is what book or movie would you recommend to our audience? So what what you're looking for is for me to get non-medical and I'm kind of going to you probably read this book, but one of my favorite books I've read in the last five years was The Goal. Um which is 
a, a, a page-turning novel. Uh, it, it feels like a non-business clinical book, and you learn all about lean while you're reading this gripping novel. I, I read it back in it, with, at Pemba, so 18, and it still comes up, and I asked my medical directors to read it. I, I was just blown away. I've never seen a book that gripping and one I wanted to pick up as much that was also absolutely stuff I think about every day for work. Love it. Yeah, you can't get through Pemba without without <laughs> believing in the power of the theory of constraints. Yes. That's great. So after listening to this podcast, a lot of people will be interested in learning more about CORE or potentially even working uh, with CORE. How can people reach you? Yeah, absolutely. So my email is pretty easy. It's brobinson at coreclinicalpartners.com. You can also just go to our website and, and put in an info request. And, you know, certainly we've been growing mostly through hospital relationships, but I think there are also opportunities for, and a good example, we had, we one of our newest contracts was a privately held contract and they weren't able to make it work anymore. So, so the guy who the guys who owned the contract were losing money, and so they came to us and said, "Hey, take a look at this, see what you think." And again, we do revenue cycle pretty well, and we said we think we can make it work, and so we were able to partner with them and let them. You know, they, I think that the alternative was to become employed by the hospital, which they didn't really want, and so we were able to help with that. So certainly, if there are people out there in situations where they think having someone who under a company that really understands how this works, um, happy to have conversations and figure out if there are ways to partner together or even, you know, maybe take on revenue cycle. There are various things we could do um, to, to help um, help um, uh, ER docs who are out there. Well, Boykin, this has been great. Thanks for all of your insights. Uh, when you're when you're back in Chapel Hill, we'll uh, hopefully catch a UNC basketball game together. And thanks for doing this. Sounds good. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to the Emergency Medicine Workforce Podcast. If you have feedback for us or just have some thoughts on this episode, hit us up on social media at EM Workforce. And don't forget to subscribe now to this podcast on your favorite podcast app or at emergencymedicineworkforce.com. This podcast is edited and produced by EarFluence. I'm Leon Edelman, and if you're in the emergency medicine trenches, I appreciate all the work that you do. We'll see you again soon with the next episode.